Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome once again to this edition of Bring It On. We are a multiple award-winning show, now in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, listeners. I'm guest anchor Nordia McNish. As many of us began to experience last week, the expanded holiday season can be a happy time of year as we gather with family and friends, exchange gifts and celebrate traditions. But the changes in family routines and extra demands on time and money can cause added stress for parents, especially for children. Yes, especially for children. But to help us make sense of this dynamic and to provide us with good holiday mental health tips, we have invited Dr. Tanisha Ann Riley, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity and Society, and a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University. Tanisha received her PhD (coughs) in developmental psychology from Virginia Commonwealth University in 2018. Her research interest focuses on cognitive cognitive and emotional processes associated with the development of both risk-related and post-social behaviors among African-American youth. Specifically, she's interested in the degree to which adolescents emotional related psychological sorry physiological responses to among other things family peers school and community settings informed decision making she also received her ma in marriage and family therapy from LaSalle university in 2009 and subsequently dr riley worked as a multi-systemic therapist for adolescents and their families Her previous work with families in clinical training informs her current research in adolescent development, as well as her interest in translational research and intervention development. Dr. Riley, I'm I'm tired from reading all of that, (laughs) (laughs) but welcome to Bring It On. Yes, welcome. So that's a heck of a title, and and that's really a lot to understand about the work that you do. So I'm going to ask you to help us to unpack that for us and just kind of Walk us through the roots of your work or your education and what brings you and, and, you know, just a quick summary before we get into the interview, where you are right now. Right. Yeah. So I took a long journey, but at the essence of my work, I study adolescent development um, and particularly black youth and their families Um, and how I sort of came to this uh, point that I'm at now. um, My first graduate degree was a clinical degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, which was really interesting, uh, working mostly with families, um, a few marital counseling. Um, But after that, I went on to work as a therapist for uh, youth who were on juvenile probation. So these were court-ordered youth um, who were required to participate in family therapy, um, and it was an in-home service. So I would go to families' homes about three times a week. And the idea behind this particular therapy It's sort of a model of context in that you try to get everyone involved in the youth's life uh, to help prevent them from getting arrested again or getting in trouble again. So that included teachers, neighbors, parents of their friends, 
family members, whoever's in the house, little siblings, older siblings, uh, the probation officer, the courts, all of those people who can sort of have an influence um, and sort of trying to train parents in, in particular ways about uh, adolescent behavior and how they can parent and how they can use particular resources uh, with the idea that we want to prevent them from getting arrested again. So I did that for about four and a half, almost five years. Um, and one of the things that I saw frequently uh, was that a lot of the youth uh, who were from racial ethnic minority backgrounds and particularly black youth, um, they were getting arrested at pretty frequently frequent rates. Um, I was in court with them very often. Um, and so I sort of struggled between uh, what the courts say and policy development as well as what I was trying to do or help the family with. Um, and so from that point, I decided, well, maybe you know I should go back to graduate school and get involved in more research. So that's what I did. And I received my doctoral degree in applied developmental psychology. Uh, what, a, what developmental psychologists do is sort of study changes across the lifespan and how particular age stages are very unique. Uh, they have unique experiences um, and what we can sort of do to track what happens early on in life to what may be happening later in life. Um, so that is what my doctoral degree is in. And in particular, I study adolescents and how early adolescents and their experiences may affect them as adults. Um, I'm mostly interested in what families and friends of them, of adolescents, can do um, to sort of combat some of the decisions that they make that are not always great <laughs> and help promote some decisions that may be uh, more pro-social, um, maybe geared towards more civic engagement, maybe more positive, and just trying to tease apart those differences and what sort of um, comes of those different pathways for black youth in particular. Yeah. So you, you are a practicing psychologist, right? Uh, not at the moment. So the I, moment. Oh, right. you're doing research right now. <laughs> right. So I'm doing research right now. I am no longer licensed, but I was, okay. I was doing work in Florida as a family therapist. Yes. What's the difference between a psychologist and a clinical psychologist? So psychology is sort of a broad science term. There are different psychologists. So I'm a developmental psychologist at the mm -hmm. PhD level. Um, there are cognitive psychologists, there are neuropsychologists, there are counseling psychologists, there are social psychologists, and then like you said, there are clinical psychologists. And most clinical psychologists are interested in clinical disorders. So those sort of types of disorders like anxiety and depression, uh, schizophrenia, how they sort of come about, um, and what is it that we can sort of do um, to understand diagnoses. The other uh, one that is probably more popular that people tend to, to know better are counseling psychologists, and counseling psychologists do a lot of the therapeutic work. They're interested in how therapy may help people, uh, what is uh, sort of psychological well-being, how can they sort of get uh, folks to a certain psychological well-being level um, using particular therapy techniques. So there are quite a range of what psychologists do, um, but generally I think m all psychologists are sort of interested in uh, well-being and how people sort of operate in this world. Is there sense. any difference between that and a clinical social worker? Because I know that clinical social workers do therapy. Mm -hmm. So is there a difference between the clinical psychologist and a clinical social worker? Uh, there's not much. There's not much of a difference. Uh, clinical social workers do a lot of a lot of therapy, as you as you mentioned. Um, 
they can work in different segments uh, or different sort of areas of, of mental health, but a lot of clinical psych, uh, social workers tend to work in community health centers or at hospitals. Um, that's sort of their area of interest. Um, and a lot of times their outcomes are more related to how can I help this person better function in their environment? Um, whereas clinical, so clinical psychologists, again, are mostly interested in the disorder and how to treat the disorder. If that makes sense. So during your work, you um, while you're collecting data, a lot of what you do depends on personal interaction with the youth uh, and their families. So I, I really want to get into some questions about these relationships. I'm assuming you have to win the trust of the the, the child involved as well as the family. Because you said it's, it's kind of a group effort uh, in order to, to help this child who seems to be in somewhat of a crisis. So can you describe your interactions early on when you first go in? What, what do you do to build that trust and, and to win those relationships? Right. So in my previous clinical work, as well as my research, um, it does take time to sort of gain trust. So I'll start first with my clinical work in that, as I mentioned, these youth and their families are court mandated. And so usually that means they don't really want <laughs> they don't really want to be there. So I'm always wondering, are they even going to answer the door? Yeah. Will they answer the call when I call them? I have to go to their home three times a week. Is once a week enough for them and they're not going to answer the door the other two times? Um, but what I've found is that sort of um, two things really sort of help in relationships, especially in clinical work. Uh, the first is just having the patience um, to listen and to hear them, but also in that process of listening and hearing them is to let them sort of drive what the treatment looks like. It's one thing for me to sort of go into a home and, or to do clinical work and to tell you what you should be doing. That's typically what people think psychology or therapy looks like. Um, but it's another to allow you to set your own goals, what you see as being successful um, in this process, um, and then for you to sort of set what, your, what you think the next steps are and where you want to see things go. Um, I find that allowing them to have agency in that um, is always way more helpful than just sort of prescribing or giving advice that I think that they should be doing, right? Um, I am an expert in some things, but I'm not an expert in your life. Um, and so if I allow you to be the expert in your life and sort of drive that, that's what's helpful. With research, um, recruitment is always really, really hard to get people to participate in research because it's a science. So they want to know, um, how will my information be used? Are you going to tell other people? Especially, you know, I study risk behavior, so I'm asking questions about when do you use substances? When was the last time you used substances? Do you skip school? So they want to, the kids want to know, who are you going to tell this information to? So I we, would. Of course. <laughs> So the, the Institutional Review Board at universities, of course, um, sort of over, overview what you're doing and they make sure that you allow the participants to know that what they say is confidential and also anonymous. No one knows who they are. Nothing gets tied to their information. Um, but then, of course, if they were to say something that would be harmful to themselves, um, we would, of course, have to um, sort of talk about that. 
But for, for research in, in those purposes, I, of course, follow the guidelines and make sure that they know that what they're doing is confidential. Uh, but generally, the youth are probably more interested in participating in research, one, because they get paid, um, but then also because sometimes I do a bit of really cool science. I have them play games to sort of assess how they um, process information and how they think about things, how that information leads to decisions. So they see it as a game and they think that that's interesting and sort of fun and unique. Um, they also get to bring their friend in my studies um, and so they like to be there with, with their peer. Um, really the question sort of comes into getting that adult consent for their child to participate and reassuring the parent that this is for scientific purposes and a lot of times um, Black families in particular are interested in how that information is going to be used to portray black youth and black families. So sort of talking to them about my work and how my work is trying to contribute to our knowledge in science, how my work tries to contribute to more positive development so that they can sort of see the entire picture that uh, science related to, you know, sort of black folks is important to do uh, because we don't have a lot of it around. And here's how I want to change the narrative, that not all black youth are bad or doing bad things. Uh, we can sort of also look at these positive aspects of what they do and how they do them. Um, and so when I try to sort of explain to them that I'm answering a question and your participation will help me understand that, I, I find that they're more sort of readily available to participate in research. So seeing that you were doing this research mostly with um, or with um, adolescents that was in, let's say, had issues with law enforcement, um, did you find that there was um, some ethical dilemma as to the information that you're getting and the fact that it's court mandated, so there has to be some reporting back? So how, you can't really control to an extent some of the information because it's information that's required. So do you find that you are in any kind of compromising position as to you as a black person, the fact that you're trying to, your intention is to be helpful in research in um, black youths, but how that information is used on a, on a secondary level, you don't really have control over it. And then that kind of shapes how you report the information. Well, this one of the things that I have sort of noticed the specifics of the information. Um, so in research, we we really are reporting it um, sort of ourselves and through our perspective and our lens. Um, but when it comes to to sort of the clinical work and client notes, um, that work is also uh, confidential. I, at that point, I did have to report back to probation officers or possibly to court if the youth was arrested again about their progress. Um, but my, again, our goal was to keep the youth in the home. And so sort of describing progress in a way um, that would allow the judge to make a decision that they are making progress or they are going towards progress um, is probably the way that I, that I would approach that. Um, but the specifics of what they do, um, whether or not they have failed any drug tests, whether or not they have actually, you know, skipped school, those specifics are actually um, sort of confidential um, and can't be released to to the judge or, or a probation officer. And so um, I do find that to be um, sort of a positive a positive thing or a way of working with youth is that I can highlight, you know, not only some of their weaknesses, but also how we're working on those weaknesses um, and what we can do in the future to prevent um, another incident from happening. So you said a lot of your um, the uh, house calls that you made were court ordered. So there's this black family, 
and uh, you probably have a child in crisis and uh, they really don't want to participate but they know this person is coming to the house so it, it's not unreasonable for them to expect a non-African American person to come walking to the door so when you get there do you do you seem to sense uh, a kind of relief or a more welcoming atmosphere uh, when they see a black woman coming to the door who wants to help them out? I will say yes. Um, so I worked with a range of, of youth when I was a family therapist, mm-hmm. but I will say that working with black families, that sort of initial relief is, is often there. Um, the barrier then becomes sometimes, um, and this is with all parents, not just black families, is when you have a youth that's struggling um, and they are on probation, as a parent, what you want to do is to not deal with that. <laughs> so not only um, do all parents sort of not want me to be you know, in the home, but they also don't want the youth to be there, right? They would rather maybe they get sent somewhere yeah. so that they can um, and so what I try to do um, in those in, with that barrier is to show them the research that typically youth who go to residential homes um, often don't come back um, sort of fixed as people would think that they are. Um, they often actually learn behaviors from the youth that are already in there. Um, and they like often prison. Yeah, and they often also don't necessarily receive treatment. That's the idea, but it, sometimes it doesn't happen or sometimes they're not ready for treatment. The other thing is even if they do sort of progress um, in a residential placement, they're coming back into a family system and a family home um, that may have in some ways perpetuated the behaviors that are going on. Um, And so if we can work within the context that they live and that they're going to develop, those are the best ways to address what's going on. And it's slow progress, um, but progress happens. Um, And so that tends to be a barrier more so than... um, my my presence once I get past mm-hmm. sort of the initial letting me in. Yeah. So you weren't just working with African-American families. Right. Back then. As a therapist. OK. Yeah. So if you're working uh, across racial lines, mm-hmm. what are some of the differences that you notice between black and white families, if any? Hmm. Good question. Huh? Yeah, that is <laughs> that is an excellent question. Because, it, you know, the culture is definitely different. Right. At some levels. Right. And there is some stigma there that um, some might assume that black um, parents don't really care about their kids when they get to a certain point, which is um, not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, parents struggle on different levels with different things and some are better equipped to deal with certain situations and some parents basically aren't. So the fact that there might be an assumption that the, the kids are acting up because their parents don't care. Right. That is an assumption and a stereotype that is definitely not true. And so when you ask me what differences do I see on the surface level, are there differences that, you know, family differences in what families do and how they sort of um, talk to each other or how they, um, you know, traditions or or things like that, of course. Like every home sort of looks different. But at the basis level, what I see is always a parent or a family that really cares and really wants to sort of work with their youth um, and try to sort of prevent those negative behaviors. And that honestly is a reason why I decided to go back into research because within family systems, you sort of see similar patterns of how families operate and their sort of needs and their care for their youth. 
But on the outside, what you often see um, are that black youth are being arrested for things that are very subjective um, and that um, really kind of don't make sense, right? Maybe they haven't maybe they haven't exactly broken their probation by staying out late, but maybe someone thought that they were disrespectful, so they got suspended from school, which is also a violation of probation, right? Yeah. That's pretty subjective. What is disrespect to a teacher? Uh, where sometimes, more often, um, and the research sort of shows this, is that white youth are then getting suspended or arrested for things that are actually in the rule book or against their probation. And so that's a reason why I wanted to go into research is to sort of understand why we have this sort of disproportionate rate of suspensions or arrests for black youth. Um, and what is it sort of behind some of this sort of emotion related things uh, like disrespect um, that may be sort of um, propelling or pushing people to want to uh, consequence black youth in a particular way. So let me ask one more question, then I'm going to let Nordia is going to get in there. So what I'm hearing is that when it comes to um, maybe law enforcement or people in positions of authority uh, that can administer discipline to black youth, um, that's where you see the differences. But, But at the family level, uh, there are more similarities and differences because you said most parents do want to help their children. Mm-hmm. That is exactly correct, yeah. There are definitely more similarities within families. And in sort of a family systems model, you can sort of see particular patterns and why things are operating in a particular way. Um, but again, I think it's it's on the outside and how families then have to interact with a particular policy or people who are in authority um, that sort of push this disproportionate rate of um, suspension and arrest. Yeah, it's it, it would seem like the research is more geared towards the effects on the youth and the youth's decision-making, but the things that are, um, that causes the youth to react so that the people of power, their situations um, being placed in, say, a predominantly white school with nobody that looks like them in power of a, in in position of authority to kind of see them as somebody who is like an ally. So do you find that there's any research that is on that end coming back to the decision making and not so much from what um, the youth is experiencing that makes them um, make the decision of make a bad decision? Right. So sort of how you pointed out, my work now is really youth focused. um, And that just particularly um, tends to be the area where um, a lot of my interests sort of aligned at first is how decisions inform emotions, um, what emotion expression means, what does it mean to try to regulate your emotions. Um, But also generally, like you said, I'm interested in the context and how contexts like school, family, peers, then influence or are influenced by the youth. And there, are, there is research on the other perspective. Um, a, a saying is always sort of like a good dissertation is a done dissertation, so I couldn't do all of the things. Um, but what I hope that eventually I, my work will do is sort of highlight other people's perspectives of black youth and their emotions and what that may mean for um, consequences that sort of result in those interactions, right? And so there is some research out there to sort of show that sometimes there's a cultural mismatch, like you mentioned in school, or an emotion expression mismatch between teachers who are predominantly white and black youth, and how they sort of perceive black youth's behavior. Do they perceive it as disrespectful? Um, 
do black youth feel respected by their teachers? So those interactions are the things that I'm interested in sort of examining next. Um, it sometimes, be, you know, it becomes difficult to sort of get get that perspective. So I've, I've, right now I'm mostly working with youth and their families, but I'm most certainly um, sort of interested in taking that route. We know sort of through past research that in particular uh, black boys are seen as physically bigger. So uh, there's research in social psychology and adolescent development to show that if you place a photo of a white youth uh, next to a photo of a black youth who are the same age, uh, white officers will say that the black youth is taller, bigger, and older. Um, there's also research to show that if you show it to police officers they and you sort of do the scenario where you ask, is this youth capable of committing this crime? They will say that the black youth is more culpable of committing that crime, uh, both at the felony level but also at the misdemeanor level. We know from research that black girls are seen as uh, sort of more sexually advanced or they have more sexual knowledge and so right and so those perceptions that people have of black youth I think are important to how they sort of also view themselves um, there's sort of theoretical work to sort of explain that the way you sort of start to identify and develop in adolescence is important right and you get all these messages from people you get messages from your parents about what it means to be a black youth but you also get messages from people about stereotypes, right, about uh, what it means to be a black youth or how they perceive you. And all of those things go into uh, identity development. Um, and so what we hope is that there are things that your parents tell you that protect you from those stereotypes, but we also know that sometimes those things can be internalizing <coughs> and can lead to, to poor decisions. And so it's complicated and complex, um, but yeah, you're right. There, There's definitely a need to sort of examine the perspective of black youth or the other side. Wow. So to um, frame, try to frame a question in, in what I'm, I'm going to say, um, I have a 14-year-old, and I'm Jamaican. So we were raised um, a certain way, different from how American children are raised. And when I came here um, a, a couple years ago to America, um, um, I lived in New York. So the, the area that I was around was, there was diversity. So I didn't have to worry about my blackness. So I take my son into this community now and my blackness is more identified and his blackness is more identified. And I fear that I didn't prepare him enough to I to the extent that he needs to have enough information to protect himself and I didn't um, to see himself and his blackness as being what it is. It it is perceived to be threatening sometimes. So in that regard I feel like I didn't prepare him enough and now there's an issue with how he's being socialized in the school and him not having those tools. And it's kind of like he's already old enough to, and so he's already been socialized in a way because of his environment. I mean, not just his home, but it's the white environment. So how do I protect him in terms of the decisions that he's making now as a youth? Because, yeah, how, yeah. I, yeah, so what I would actually, say that you probably have prepared him in ways that you didn't think that you were. Um, so there's a lot of research on what um, cultural scholars call racial ethnic socialization. And that is the idea that there are certain behaviors, things that we say, certain practices that tell our youth what it means to be black. Um, and so most of this sort of research comes from Diane Hughes's work 
And she sort of categorized um, this in three ways. That there's cultural socialization, which is probably things that you do that you don't notice. Things like food, magazines, taking them to museums, talking to them about sort of pride in who they are. There is preparation for bias. And those are messages and things that you do to say, watch out because this person may discriminate against you. Um, And that can be through I think times have changed. Um, a lot of her work was in the in the 90s, and she's sort of thinking about what it means now. That can be through media, social media, just sort of those messages that they get that people may discriminate against them because of their race. And then there's an idea um, that's less frequently studied, but it's promotion of mistrust. That's sort of a watch out interacting with this person because uh, you may not be able to trust them, right? And so there are ways that parents do this in different ways that are not always as direct as we would think. So I would say that you probably have prepared him. It's just the change in context that now he's around uh, people where his identity is more salient uh, because there aren't people who, who look like him. Before we go to break, uh, for our listening audience, we're speaking with Tanisha N. Riley, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity and Society and a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University. On the other half of the break, I want to pick up the conversation again with uh, Nordia's experience uh, with her son, if you don't mind.
yes. The ox and the lamb kept time for a rubber bump pump. I played my drum for him for a rubber bump pump. I played my best for him for a rubber bump pump. For a rubber bump pump. For a rubber bump pump. Then he smiled at me for a rubber bump pump. To help us launch our December holiday music series, you just heard the legendary Shirley Caesar singing Little Drummer Boy. Now back to our discussion with Dr. Tanisha Riley. Now I wanted to segue into the question of um, parents. Um, It is a fact that a lot of youths are being raised by single parents. Um, A majority of them are females. How can... um, say, single mothers who are raising um, strong-minded sons, um, protect them or safeguard them in a way where they make good decisions? So for black youth and... You answer that. You're going to make a ton of money. (laughs) I don't know if I have the best answer. Um, But for black youth in particular, a lot of research as far as decision-making around risk behaviors um, points to, again, as I mentioned, racial socialization. Talking to them about their culture and who they are, what it means to be black, and that's important because it really helps strengthen their identity, Um, and that's an important component to adolescence, right? Before adolescence, you sort of just do what other people tell you to do, you like, and you wear what other people tell you to like, Um, but adolescence is a time for exploration. So how you balance their decisions around personal choices like music, clothing, those things all relate to their identity, including what it means to be black and how they present their identity and what that means for them. Um, And having a strong identity is a great protector against making bad decisions because you know what you like and you know what you don't like. I don't want to sort of make this statement that, you know, adolescent decision-making is all bad. (laughs) There's actually some people and research out there to show that having curiosity and sort of engaging in some decisions that might be negative is normative for adolescents and actually helps them understand the consequences and why you shouldn't do those things. So to say that we can prevent all of that from happening, we you know you can't prevent all of what your son does, right? But what you hope is that he develops a strong enough identity to know who he is um, and what may be sort of a detrimental consequence to him and what he shouldn't be doing. And so having mm-hmm. a strong identity is important. And for black youth, a lot of times that comes 
at the parents sort of processing around what it means for them to, to be black and to live in America. So I want to pivot here just a little bit because we are going into a holiday season. Uh, and a- as we all know, a lot of adults have a difficult time coping with the stresses of a holiday season because there's this tremendous amount of pressure to spend money, spend mm-hmm. money. We're just saturated and inundated with commercials about what to buy your kids or, or everything. I mean, a cup of coffee at McDonald's qualifies as a gift, you know. So when the adults in the family are feeling that pressure uh, and then ultimately it's going to translate down to the kids some way, somehow, how do kids cope with that or or what kind of uh, suggestions do you have for parents to help children cope with those uh, holiday issues? Um, I, I would probably say three things. Um, supports are always very important. So even though you may be limited on financial resources, having the ability to sort of go to someone and talk to them about what's going on, having supports that can support your children, whether that's watching them um, or talking to them, um, engaging with them, loving on them, supports are very important. Um, And it tends to be that black families tend to be more communal in, in that area. And that's sometimes can be a buffer Um, against some of the negative effects. The other thing is open communication and communication that is appropriate for their age, right? So even sort of in sort of financial stress, what tends to sort of cause some disruption in the family is usually conflict. Um, But if you're communicating what's going on and there isn't much conflict around um, sort of what they can and can't do around the holiday times, and you're communicating why they can't do, you know, so sometimes we don't like to explain to our kids why things are a certain way, but open communication is actually really important for them to sort of grasp with and understand what's going on. The other thing, the third thing that I would say is self-compassion is really, really important. There tends to be a lot of work now around the idea of uh, mindfulness or therapy that's related to mindfulness, but having compassion for yourself and sort of understanding that, no, maybe you don't have everything that everyone else is giving their youth, but what is it that you have done and what is it that you have worked towards? And can you be compassionate enough towards yourself to say, that's okay that I'm not, you know, in this place that I want to be. I'm okay. I'm still a good parent. We're still a good family. Um, And that sort of propels the idea that um, you can still be sort of passionate, uh, compassionate towards yourself and be a good family, even though you are not sort of like everyone else around the holidays. So I would say those three things, open communication, supports, and having self-compassion for who you are. Now that part really talked about the um, self-care of the parent, but looking at it from um, the child perspective, you know, it is said that children are biologically selfish. And, you know, because their brain hasn't been developed enough to kind of take into consideration to some degree, because you have some kids that are, you know, advanced in a certain way where their brain is like fully developed as an adult already because of the way how they were socialized or the way how they were taught to interact in a way. So having a child who might seem like they're selfish in a way because they want and they want and they can't see the sacrifices of their parents or they can't see the um, the thing 
the things that the parents have done before. So now that this can happen now, they can't understand that. So how do we as parents kind of reach our children in that segue where they're coming from a perspective that, oh, you can, and we're from a perspective that we can't. So <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's like there's mental health on right. both sides yeah. in that way because the children can put a pressure on, they can put the pressure on when it comes to things that they want and you know and they find ways of making you feel guilty as a parent because <laughs> maybe you used to provide it but you're not doing it anymore or you scale back or something so I'm sorry I was laughing because I thought she was describing the president <laughs> <laughs> uh, well yeah that's a tough one um I think, I think again, it has to do with communication that's related to their age, right? So you mentioned children think you can when you can't. Um, and so I always tend to talk in the affirmative. And so with a smaller child, um, I would probably explain to them what I can do instead of a no, right, or what I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you said, they they kind of don't want to hear that sometimes. Um, but I describe, or, or in general research and the way that I describe adolescents in, in my course is that they're actually very similar to toddlers. That's why we call them three-nagers because they also want, want, want. Um, their bodies are also very similar. Um, and again, research shows that their brains are developmentally different than any other age stage. And so they desire rewards. They love rewards. It trumps their ability to make good decisions. And so again, speaking in the the affirmative of what they can do is always useful. Um, So I talk to my students a lot about how can we change policies so that, you know, adolescents don't do um, the things that we don't want them to do. The worst thing you can do to an adolescent is tell them what they can't do and what they shouldn't do, because that sort of goes in one ear and out the other. (laughs) What they want to know is, how can I feel good? I like rewards. I like high emotion. I'm emotionally intense. And so talking to them about, like, well, here's what we can do. You know, I know you want this, but this is what we can do, and this is why, you know, this is also helpful, and I understand what you want. But in those ways, sort of communicating what can be done is usually more useful or more helpful. So compromise. Yeah. And parents don't like to see that they're compromising. Right. You do what I say because I said so, because I said so. But a lot of the fights are around compromising because a good sort of parent child relationship allows your child to think about their autonomy, to think about how to negotiate. Right. They're going to need these things to work with people. They're going to need them to be in relationships. So negotiation is very powerful. But a lot of times for parents, because they're in sort of positions of authority. It's like, no, you do what I say. Well, how do you help them sort of negotiate what is possible and what is not? Um, what are those possibilities? And that that's useful. So think about it as negotiation and not compromise. Negotiate? Did you say it? Are you <laughs> suggesting that I negotiate with my children? Well, it doesn't. Negotiate doesn't have to have sort of this bad term. It's more of a it's more of a come to the table and here's what we can agree on. Uh, and here's like, what we don't agree. Go to your bedroom. <laughs> anyway, I think what yeah. Go my ahead. next question. Um, you you kind of uh, made me think about about something. What are the eight? What going back to your study on black children? What is the age range of the children that you're working with? And do you break them down into different age groups? And if so, what are they? Yeah. So I study adolescents, which 
by research time sort of terms, it's 10 to 25. Um, and a lot of people think that that is years that's of age. Years <laughs> of age. That's a long range, right? I thought it was 19 because I actually looked it up. <laughs> 10 to 25. Um, because 10, uh, what they say is adolescence begins in biology, which means it begins when uh, youth start puberty, but it ends in culture. And so for some cultures, uh, mm. the ages of 20 to 25-ish, you're still sort of emerging, or what we would call an emerging adult in a way. So 18 to 25, even though it's included in adolescence, some people call it emerging adult because you're not quite there yet. You're not as um, sort of independent as we like. But there are other cultures where, no, 17, 16 sort of marks when you're an adult. So if we're thinking globally, uh Adolescence ends in culturally what we find to be important. And you can also think about that historically, right? So early on, uh, adolescence probably ended around 17, 18, because maybe people didn't finish high school. Maybe they jumped into a family or jumped into a career. Um, whereas now, most people sort of prolong that what we would consider societally to be adult-ish, right? as far as having kids and being married. So 10 to 25, I typically study 12 to 18 because I'm interested in middle school and high school and that transition. Um, but we can think about it as 10 to 12 early adolescence because 12 on average is when you start puberty, uh, 12 to 15 because you sort of have grown out of puberty and we hope that puberty doesn't have as much as an effect on you and then maybe 15 to 18 and then 18 to 24, 25 college or emerging adult. Well, going back to um, your work with uh, African-American adolescents, have you done any work with biracial children or have you made any observations where biracial children are concerned? Because it seems like they bring an additional set of challenges and, and maybe even uh, factors of culture uh, to the table for things that need to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. So my work in particular does not focus on biracial youth. I've had them uh, participate in my research. Um, and I allow them to sort of self-identify. Um, and a lot of times they will identify as biracial or multiracial. Um, and so I, I sort of let them let them do that. But there is some research out there. Very few researchers are, are looking specifically at biracial youth. Um, but what they are sort of finding is that there's this complexity between what is your identity versus how other people identify you. Um, so as I mentioned before, you start to develop your identity based on your own personal preferences and what people have told you about your race or ethnicity. And that's important because in a biracial home, you want to teach your child about their biracial identity. You want to talk to them about what it means to be black and what it means to sort of have those cultural values. But people may also talk to them about what it means to uh, be white or be the predominant race um, and what that may mean for them and how those experiences in the world may differ from if people see them, when people see them as black, right? Um, because we know that in society, uh, probably a biracial child who um, is white and African-American will be seen as, as African-American. And so. I was going to say, I, I grew up in Gary, Indiana, which mm -hmm. was predominantly black. And there were quite a few, well, I won't say quite a few, but there were a number of uh, uh, 
interracial families with biracial children. But, and I'm not saying that there were not any that lived in the white neighborhoods, but all the ones that I knew lived in the black neighborhoods. And they, they would readily tell you, I'm black. But correct me if I'm wrong, I kind of see that changing now, where children are, are identifying more as biracial. Yeah, I think it's the changing demographics of the U.S. Um, and the fact that, you know, sort of uh, personally, they may be thinking about their identity um, in different ways now. Um, so as you mentioned, um, when you were growing up, people identified as black. Um, and that may be changing again, uh, like I said, because they're trying to figure out what their identity is. Um, as I mentioned, I let youth decide. And I think that that's typically what happens for biracial children is that they understand the values and the cultures of each race, but they tend to identify in a particular manner. Um, now, either that's socially constructed by how people view them um, or it's constructed by which values are most important to them um, based on, on that multiracial identity. Okay. And... Uh I want to go back to your time when you were working with families in their homes. And, and uh, again, you said most of them were court ordered. So what are some of the success stories? Uh, like you said, you had to go back to court and report on progress or non-progress. But uh, what were some of the success stories? And if you can point to any of those, what seemed to be the driving force behind um. being successful in those situations? It depends on what you see as success. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what would the judge that. consider <laughs> <laughs> success? Uh, I, I think the judge and lawmakers have, I think they don't often listen to researchers and therapists, and mm. I think they have very high expectations for what, for what happens. I will say that there, there was one judge that um, when I came into the courtroom, he knew that the family was receiving help and uh, he was very, he was very lenient towards my, pre just my presence there. Oh, is that, that right? Oh, you know, Miss Riley is here. So this person is getting help and I'm going to allow them to sort of stay and, and continue in their treatment. Um, but the type of treatment that I was doing only lasted for about four months. There were some extensions, but the idea was that it was a short-term, if you can call it that, a short-term sort of treatment planning um, in ways that the family can sort of improve. So will I say that there were any success stories and that everyone did everything right and never went back <laughs> well, to being arrested? <clears throat> we can define success <laughs> as progress. Like, did you have, did any of the youth uh, either stop having violations or, or getting rearrested or did they actually uh, do better in school? Yeah, yeah. So there there were some youth who did, but it, but it, again, the, the, the point of the therapy was to, to, op, to help them operate within context that they're in. And that can become difficult in schools um, and within the community when the police officers sort of know them and the teachers see them as um, problematic. I would say success stories, the success story that I had came out of a family understanding um, that particular ways that they were operating were not helpful or useful. Um, and they learned to work together. Mm -hmm. um, and they also learned some things that they began to work with with their younger children that were in the home. Um, and, you know, have sort of um, told me 
that they feel like it was a success because now they know what to do. Um, they've worked really hard with the younger children to sort of prevent those things from continuing to happen that happened with the older child. Um, that, I would say, is my most successful story. So you actually end up giving the parents some tools to work with Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Did you notice that in doing um, that clinical research that you were doing that there was an expectation from the law enforcement side to be for them to be become more submissive and less, um, as they would see it as antagonistic and um, disrespectful or whatever, which is the subjective things that they mostly get in trouble for as black youths instead of the typical things that should be warranted as, you know, something that the white kid normally get arrested for. So did you notice any... Um, signal as to well the expectation was that you know kind of toned them down hmm. i i wouldn't say that i noticed that in particular um the county i worked in was pretty big so it, it was very rare that an officer would know a child it, it happens but i wouldn't say that i got that I received that signal from them. And I think that's largely because what I tried to do is make some behavioral changes um, so that the youth wouldn't even have to interact with that officer or that person anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I hope that answers your question. It, it did, it's just something that percolated in my head because I know that um, we as black parents are beginning to teach our son to just, you know, you know, s stay still. You mm -hmm. see the police, you, you keep your hands to Doing your side. It's kind of yeah. some formalities that we're yeah. teaching. And in a way, we're kind of training them to be submissive for their protection. So mm -hmm. I was just wondering if, you know, there was some kind of expectation on the um, law enforcement side as to that kind of outcome with the youths um, that you were working with was the expectation that... Yeah, no, I get that because parents often do the talk and that's part of the way we socialize them to interact with, with police officers. But I don't think that I, I saw that directly from them. Um, I, I'm, there may be work out there where people have asked police officers or thought about police officers' perspectives of, of black youth. Again, I, I mentioned that one about seeing them as more culpable and bigger. Um, so I would wonder if that sort of subjective idea that you know you should do as I say also comes from, from that type of work. You mean, uh, are you referring to police officers? Right, yeah. You know, that, that made me think of something. The police officers, uh, and I'm going to try not to get too far off subject, don't seem to have uh, age range is non-existent. I was talking to my brother a couple of days ago on Thanksgiving night. My 62-year-old brother and my 84-year-old uh, stepmother were on the way home. The police officer stops the car, goes to my stepmother's side she's in the passenger seat and he asked her if there are any guns or drugs in the car <laughs> so that that age range just just doesn't seem to have any application when it comes to police officers yeah but in the last couple of minutes that we have left i wanted to ask um if you had any parting thoughts for and this is based on your work with the african-american youth do you have any parting thoughts suggestions or, or even warnings that you'd like to communicate to parents of African-American youth? Oh, so I left it <laughs> wide open for you. I know, that's heavy. Um, I'm, I'm a heavy person. <laughs> Any kind of, um, 
pinpoint decision making like pinpoint decision making um yeah again i think i think as i explained previously my my take home would be that the way we talk to youth about being black and, and in particular sort of the the positive ways that we talk about being black the ideas that um you know black is to be proud and that there's a legacy and something that you can um, be proud of I think is the most important thing because a strong identity and a strong racial ethnic identity is important Mm -hmm. to black youth Um, and what we've seen in research is that that is protective over decision making um, that may be negative and protective over sort of negative consequences that they may have. So is is that maybe the biggest challenge instilling a strong uh, sense of identity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that that's the biggest challenge. Well, Dr. Raleigh, on that note, um, we're going to have to uh, say that we have run out of time, but we often do that when we're having a good conversation. (laughs) Uh, So I want to say for providing us with good holiday mental tips, we want to thank Dr. Tanisha N. Rowling, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity and Society and a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University. Bring it on as an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email again is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from the WFHB News Department. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal LaFontant. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm guest anchor Nordia McNish. Tune in next Monday, December 9th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.